Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Today's guest has the unusual ability to listen to messages from ancient myths and from archetypes, gods and goddesses, where they talk to her and enrich her life with stories. Maybe it it stems from some past life or her deep connection to all the Shakespeare plays, which she knows and loves so well. Please welcome Hilary Tate. Hilary, I am so glad you can join me. Thank you, Jane. I'm very happy to be here. So, Hillary, can you tell us about your life and your background? How did you get so deeply involved in myths and archetypes? Uh, yes, delighted. I, 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 my family is from Texas. I grew up in Wyoming, but uh, so this is about growing up in Wyoming. That I was a theater kid. Uh, people who turn out to be theater kids, there are misfits until they get, they fall into their tribe in the theater. So I spent every hour that I possibly could in the theater when I was in junior high and high school. And when I went to the University of Wyoming, I was an English major. Spent all my time in the theater that I possibly could. This is acting, uh, doing props, a glamor job if ever there was one, uh, just having a really good time and getting to know great eccentric people. Time passes. I went, oh, I went to the University of Colorado for my master's degree, and there's a Shakespeare festival there. So that was where I fell into Shakespeare land, a place where I continue to dwell. I Years pass. Adventures ensue, and I ended up at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, where I worked for 30 years. I was a director of publications for quite a while there. And one of the things, the education department, publications, education, publicity, it was a, a do-everything kind of department, which, by the way, was something that we learned from the founder, Angus Bomer, which is, if it has to be done, I can do it, <laughs> which is, I think, you know, a lovely way to live your life. But anyway, I, th- so there were classes that were being offered for uh People who, who just happened, people who love to go to plays and also find out a little bit more about them. And they were then and they still are called Wake Up with Shakespeare, oh. which means they were morning classes. And I wheedled my way in to teaching one of those classes, which I did very poorly for maybe two years. And then I got better, definitely got better. And in the meantime, a friend I think it was 37 years ago, he founded something which was um, the Summer Seminar for High School Juniors. And these are theater kids, that is, misfits who found their tribe between their junior and senior years in high school to come to Ashland for 10 days and just 
immerse themselves completely in every area of theater. And since the person who founded this was a close friend, he employed me heavily to help out with the teaching, although there generally end up being, I don't know, 20 or 30 people in the, from the festival company, all branches of the festival, who work with these kids. It's one of the thrills of my life is working with those high school kids and honest to God seeing that I am making a difference in their life. And what when it turned out to be my job, it evolved into my job, is to introduce them to the possibility that there is a spiritual dimension to the work in theater. I just kind of eased into it and they were such, they still are to this red hot minute, such yes sayers <laughs> that they, even if they had never thought about it before, they would say yes, this theater has a spiritual dimension and I want to participate in it. So wow. th those are, that that's part of my Shakespeare life. Well, um, let's talk about the myth. How did you connect with myth, the myth and the archetypes and this is, we go way back. When my mother was a little girl in Texas, on a Sunday afternoon, the whole family would go out to the farm of one of the uncles. And my mother, who later on became a great gardener, but at that time, I always picture her as being an indoor person, as I still am. She would sit in a window seat and she would read this book of myths. The Myths and Legends of Greece and Rome was this book. and I think it was a Victorian textbook. It had that feeling to it, and it was illustrated with black and white photos of great works of art featuring the mythic elements. So when I was eight, my mother handed that book to me, and she said, I think you'll enjoy this, which was like prophecy because I was on that track from that moment forward. I have been immersed in the Greek myths since I was eight years old, which is quite a while ago. Wow. Yes. And, and was there a story about your ironing board and, uh, and Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> there is a story. Okay background for that story. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival has its brilliant education department and there are two rules, two principles on which the Shakespeare, I mean, the, the, the department teaches Shakespeare. One is the words are not in the way, the words are the way. And the second one is get the words into your body. Wow. And this jump over a little bit. In Shakespeare's time, people inhabited their entire bodies. It was with Descartes and the Age of Reason and so on that suddenly we get the peculiar notion that ourselves dwell in our heads and the body is just this vehicle for moving the head from place to place. Shakespeare wrote for the entire body. I can think of one example in Midsummer Night's Dream when Helena talks about waggish boys. If you are paying attention to waggish boys, you see puppies wagging their little behinds. 
<laughs> I, you know, and I mean, and that goes into your behind, and and you you're just seeing the waggish boys. So, yes. So the, or, the Shakespeare Festival has many exercises for moving the words into the body. But I am remembering when I was 13, I read a book about a young woman who was on the Chautauqua circuit. And she recited the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. Well, I didn't know the balcony scene, from, or I didn't even know Romeo and Juliet, really, although I was exactly the age of Juliet. But we had a book in our house that had the balcony scene in it. So I would put it on the ironing board. And while I am ironing, this was a while back when people still ironed. When I was ironing, I would look over and memorize the balcony scene while moving my arm back and forth. And I believe that was a curious way of getting Shakespeare into my body. And clearly it worked. Wow. So just out of curiosity, <clears throat> you, you talked about Hera being your archetype mm -hmm. or your go-to goddess. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yes, go-to goddess, or queen of earth and heaven. <laughs> One or the so other. So how, how did you connect with Hera? And are, are there stories Oh, about goodness, this? I have stories for everything. <laughs> Jean Houston, who was one of my great mentors. Jean Houston, when I first met her, I mean, this would be within two days of meeting Jean Houston for the first time, said to me, and it is, it is her way to say, you must. And mine, mine was, you must find a beloved of the soul. And I wasn't quite sure what that was, but it appears to be an archetype with whom you have a close relationship. I said, how do I find a beloved of the soul? And she said, this is wise. Just pay attention to this. Listen. I mean, my way is to talk. But she said, listen. Well, that I didn't find that that was particularly satisfying. So I talked a lot. But I also, in my head, I made a checklist of, which divine beings uh, match my personality. And, um, and a, a good year later, I was doing an exercise. I was running a series of classes with a friend. And in, in the course of this, the voice of Hera came through me, or so it seemed to me at the time, I mean, saying things that I could have said, but I wasn't saying them. I'm pretty sure she was. Well, I rejected it because if you read the myths, Hera is a vindictive bitch. And I thought, and I am nice Hillary. Now, what does a vindictive bitch have to do with me? So I ignored it. But the first time I went to Greece, there we did the very first time we did something splendid was at Troy. And I was assigned the role of Hera oh. in, in the, um, the Judgment of Paris, where he chose among Aphrodite, Athena, and Hera for the, the most beautiful. I was assigned the role of Hera, who is at that point kind of vindictive. And I let that go. But a person on the trip, somebody that I knew from Ashland very well, couldn't remember my name, and she kept calling me Hera. <laughs> And later on, 
on one of the islands, we were doing an exercise in which I, I asked Jean, how is it, you know, what, what is it like to have a beloved of the soul, to have a quantum partner, which is another thing they called it. And she seized me by the wrist and she flung me one way and she said, Hillary, and she flung me the other way and she said, Hera, her choice, not mine. And she kept flinging me back and forth until finally in one of the Hera positions, a voice came through me out of the center of the earth that said, stop it. And Jean laughed and she said, that's how you do it. <laughs> Whoa. So, so what did you feel? I mean, how did, what did you, how did you well, react to I, I was still bucking against it. Because it just did not feel like Hera was the right one. It was, it was easily a year later that one day my eyes were opened, as it were, and I thought, okay, Hera is the queen of earth and heaven. She's known as the lady splendor of heaven. And if I'm going to be her junior partner, not a bad gig. <laughs> And from that moment forward to this instant, she is with me. And wow. we, we have written books together. We have done all kinds of very fine things together. So just out of curiosity, um, because some of my, our listeners might want to know too, um, does she come th through to you like in a, vision, a visual thing or a voice, an auditory voice, or a feeling, or... I would say feeling is the closest, but what it really is, is I just know. Ah. I mean, one minute I do know, and the next... I mean, one minute I don't know, the next minute I do know. And ah. I know it is she. One of my jobs, since I became her junior partner, is to burrow under the myths about her and find other iterations of the same story. For instance, if you read the stories of the heroes, the heroes are children of Zeus by women who are not Hera. And the story, this is where we get the jealous and vindictive part of her, that she is very mean to the women and she is relentless in pursuing the children, the heroes. But if you pay attention to the story, those heroes would not be heroes if she hadn't pushed them as hard as she did. They're, they're you know, they're children with a good birthright, but, you know, they're all set to be ordinary or bullies even. And she pushes them and she nudges them. And Heracles, who is the one that she is fiercest to, is eventually taken into heaven, into Olympus. And he is given a ritual rebirth from under Hera's chair. And when he comes out reborn, he is married to Hera's daughter, Hebe, who is her youth self. 
and his name, in fact, means the glory of Hera. Wow. So it's a hop, skip, and a jump from there to look for the stories under the stories. The stories that we have have been passed to us almost without exception by male writers with the male privilege patriarchal point of view in which women are minor players or, you know, sex toys. And my interest is in looking under those stories. And, I, you know, it's in work of imagination and possibly some divine downloading. I won't reject that possibility <laughs> to find alternate stories twining in and out of the great stories. And the one that I am working with and have been for years and years and years is the Odyssey. Because Penelope's story is sitting under the Odyssey. Okay, so let's go back. The Odyssey, um, uh, Odysseus is the male figure that goes off to war for many years and mm-hmm. fights the Trojan War, comes back, can't get back home, and he he's captured by the sirens and... Actually, he he eludes the sirens, but he hates doing it. He really likes the sound of the sirens. But anyway, he had 10 years fighting in Troy. Then a year and a half wandering the Mediterranean, where he has all kinds of adventures, and then seven and a half years trapped on the island with Calypso, who wants him to become a god, Forget Penelope and stay with her forever. And so his wife Penelope mm-hmm. is meanwhile waiting okay. at home. She she's home on Ithaca, with their son who was just a baby when he left. You know, fifteen twenty years ago. She's um, in my reading of this, the two of them, Penelope and Odysseus, worked together to make Ithaca a. a prosperous and happy place but it's a two-person job they're partners and when one partner goes away the other partner has to pick up the slack and it's very hard work because when Odysseus sailed away he took really a lot of the adult men of Troy with of, of Ithaca with him to Troy so they're all gone for the ten years, the for the ten years of the war, and then, and none of the other men come home ever. By the way, but they're leaving their sons, who are little kids who are growing up without a male role model. And and so, is there any pressure for Penelope to get remarry? Well, yes. The, 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 these boys who don't have good manners, they grow up to be young men with bad manners, and they kind of invade the palace. It's like a big home invasion where they show up and they they kill the, the beasts and eat them every night and they drink up the wine and they uh, seduce the maids and they want what they think Odysseus has been gone like 17 years now don't you think it's time you gave up on him and married somebody else, who will then become king of this still very prosperous island. And Penelope 
No. But she's, they're threatening her son. She knows her son is in danger because one of the ways that they can become king is to kill her son. Oh. And so she knows he's in danger. And there's not a lot she can do to protect him. So she does this incredibly ingenious thing, which is, she says, I'm going to, I'll choose a husband, but first I need to weave this thing. Now, the book says a shroud for my father-in-law, Laertes, who used to be king of Ithaca, by the way, and he's kind of abdicated and gone to live on a farm. But other sources that I have read, and I like this better, say it's not really a shroud. It's more a tapestry of the life story. Oh, okay. So I call it the story. Actually, I got that from a book. They call it the story cloth. So I'm going to weave the story cloth of my father-in-law. And after I've finished that, then I'll choose somebody to marry. And every night, um, every day she weaves. This this puts her away from these riotous young men because, you know, she's in a weaving chamber somewhere else in the palace. And then at night, when they have passed out from drinking too much or staggered home, she takes out everything that she's woven the day before, and she manages to sustain this ploy for several years until one of her maids rats on her. So she weaves it into the day and unweaves and, and, it and picks out picks out all the threads at night. Wow. But that's pretty darn clever. You know, she can't fight them. Right. But she can outthink them. Wow. And when you consider that Odysseus is the only man in Greek mythology who is known for his intelligence instead of his knock 'em sock 'em smack 'em dead prowess. And he's okay, he's an okay fighter, but he's really a great thinker. And that she is his equal. Wow. Okay, so so te- how did how did you start to write about Penelope? I mean, um what, tell tell us about the the Penelope's bath story. Thank That's you. when it first started. That right? is definitely when it first started. This was on the same trip to Greece where I kept getting called Hera. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't mind it now, but then it was it rankled. We went to Ithaca. The point this is a Jean Houston trip. And just all praise to Jean Houston and Peggy Rubin, who have been I would say midwifed this story, except it hasn't totally been born yet. But anyway, they have they have nurtured and cared for this story every step of the so way. They were the people that put the trip together. Yes, they are okay. the people who put the trip together. So we went to Ithaca, which is where Penelope's part of the story took place. We'd been to Troy, where Odysseus had ten years worth of the story going on, and we sailed around, and we ended up in Ithaca. And we are walking along Ithaca, and we come, we're come. we being guided by this wonderful woman whom we saw again 15 years later, and our names were still in her guest book. She was the Aww. woman from the museum, and she guided us around the hills around Ithaca, or around this town. And there was an underground spring, and you, you go into a little cave that has bushes in front of it. You kind of have to part the bushes and slip down into this underground pool. 
And she had told Jean the myth of the place. And Jean told us the myth, which is that it, the local people say that when Odysseus was making his horizontal journeys all around the Mediterranean, Penelope was making vertical journeys in the pool. It was the place where she went down inside herself. Wow. Well, I get chills when I think about that. But as I stepped out of that pool and came up into the daylight, I was a different person. And as I walked along, and, you know, and the trip, you know, the, the, the tour moved on. We're trudging along. And I felt Penelope's story coming in through the soles of my feet. It was just this odd feeling, wow. which I stay with. So when I got back to were, Ashland, Oregon, were, I... Were there words coming through or just knowings? It was the knowings. And the first story that I got was, I, 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 it's something that happened to me when I was young, where my cousins and I were supposed to be sitting on the porch because it was pouring rain, and instead we kept daring each other. to run, And we ended up running out into the rain, all around the yard, screaming. And that turned out to be the first episode in the story of Penelope, who, who grew up with her cousins were very distinguished. You know, the famous Gemini, the twins, were two of her cousins, and Helen of Troy, she became Helen of Troy, and Clytemnestra. So she grew up, in my telling, with these four cousins. She was, in fact, their cousin, whether she grew up with them or not. But in my story, she she grows up with them. And the first part of the story is daring each other to run out into the rain and um, eventually pulling the roof down over their nursery, <laughs> oh my because, which my cousin and I did not do, although I believe we were capable of it. <laughs> so so over the years, how much of Penelope's story has, has come through? All of it. I, I have a, an outline of the entire story, but it's turning into many multiple books. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I am with her all the way to the end. I, I've written that down. I spent an entire summer outlining it, which was a, an out-of-this-world experience. Wow. So, so what is the whole series uh, titled? The name of the whole series is Bright of Women. B R I G H T. It's one of the things that Homer calls her, and he and she is the only woman that he says something like that about. Wow. It's godlike woman, divine woman, and he he doesn't say that even about Helen. And so the first book, which you've just completed, yes, it, the name of that book is Lover of Laughter. And so any time an experience comes to me with a certain punch, it becomes incorporated into the story. And very early on, a, a, a concatenation of events, like three days in a row, three things happened that all fitted together that led me to Cyprus, which is the island where Aphrodite stepped out of the, uh, the sea and onto the land for the first time. 
And there was there at Paphos, on Cyprus, a college of priestesses of Aphrodite. And so Penelope goes to the college of priestesses. And one of the many, many epithets of Aphrodite is lover of laughter. So that's the name of the first book, Lover of Laughter. And it's about Penelope's early school years. So just in case people want to read this book, I mean, I'm sure I want to read it, but how would they, has it been published yet? It has not been published. It has not been offered to a publisher. Okay. But as of last Tuesday, it was finished, so... Okay. I mean, that's so, six days. It's, so people should look for it on Amazon? I pray, God, that they, people will be able to find it on Amazon before very long. And they should look for Lover of Laughter? Lover of Laughter by Hilary Tate, 1L. Great. <laughs> so do you have any suggestions for how to access this inner life uh, to other people because um, it's sort of based on my book Change Within to Change the World so this rich inner life that you've got how does that um, how does that affect the external for you and what would you suggest to people I go back to Jean Houston for this Jean has an exercise called the four levels and it, they, they are the levels inside the person. But, you know, the image is you're going into a mountain. But the first level is the physical. The second is the psychological. The third is the mythic. And the fourth is the unitive, where all things are one. Kind of like a spiritual. It, it, oh, it had, totally spiritual by the time you get to unitive. And I would suggest... But following yourself, you know, go. Yeah, Jean often recommends that you take an object, you know, a, a very unfraught object like a shoe, carry it with you and see how it changes and how you change toward it at the physical level, at the psychological level, at the mythic level, and unitive. And then after you've you've spent time at the unitive place, you come back up through these levels. And there are such changes that take place in this journey that I believe that is one way. I know it was very material to me to to get in touch with what was going on inside me. And I mean, so much so that now, essentially, I live in the mythic realm. Mm. I mean, every time I make that four-level journey, when I get to the mythic realm, I really, you know, they're just saying, oh, look, Hillary's back. I mean, which, by the way, I went back to Penelope's bath just a few years ago, which is, it's been allowed to go to hell. I mean, it's just, it's clogged and ugly and, and weedy. But as I went down into it, I felt, I knew the voices saying, look, Hillary's back. Oh. Which was an amazing feeling. And it was my birthday. And that was nice, too. Okay, so this rich inner life that you have, has that actually um, impacted your external life? I don't see how it cannot. Yeah, 
Yes. I mean, it is so integral to my external life that I almost can't tell you where one ends or the other begins. I, I think maybe they they coexist all the time now. So kind of like both sides of a coin. You yes. One coin and... Yes. Okay. And, um, and so does everyone have an archetype or a... And how would you find this? Well, remember what Jean said to me? Listen. <laughs> and uh, please do not follow my my pattern and fight it like crazy. Because, you know, you're just wasting time when you could be enjoying the company of an archetype. But uh, I, uh, Hera is not the only archetype that I enjoy the company of, if you know what I mean, and can put up with a preposition in the wrong place in a sentence. But... Uh, Every once in a while, you you hear a story involving an archetype, and you say, "Oh, there's a friend, Durga, in in Hindu mythology, is a very dear friend, and I will tell you what it is about Durga that I love. It is that all the gods and humans could not defeat the demons." fighting together. So they created this female being and endowed her with all of their attributes. And single-handedly, she rode into battle on a lion singing. And just, I mean, there's ride into battle on a lion singing. How can I not love her? How can I not learn from her? I guess that brings us to a natural close. So you don't miss any of our shows. Make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.